narrative on Bitcoin shifting once again. Has the pandemic legitimized crypto assets? Is Bitcoin the hedge? What is Bitcoin's role in the economic cycle? And is Bitcoin's race to six digits a fantasy or is it inevitable? Welcome to Word on the Block, the series that takes a deeper dive into blockchain and the emerging technologies that shape our world at the intersection of business, politics and economy. It's what we cover right here on Forecast News. I'm Forecast Editor-in-Chief Angie Lau. Well, in mid-September, 17 top Fed officials agreed to allow inflation to run moderately above 2% for some period of time. While fear of inflation looms around the globe, investors are looking towards alternative investments to protect their portfolios. For some time now, this alternative investment has been gold. But in 2009, that changed. We now have what's often referred to as digital gold or the almighty Bitcoin. And we're seeing more and more sophisticated investors flocking towards Bitcoin. On this episode of Word on the Block, we're going to answer the question, is Bitcoin the hedge? And to answer that question... Our guest today is the principal of ZeroCap, the digital asset firm for private clients. Trent Barnes, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Thank you for having me and uh, glad to be a part of this. Absolutely. Okay, so let's let's talk about what you've been doing in this space. You've been in the space for a little bit, but increasingly your business now serves the kind of clientele that once upon a time would 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 have mocked uh, this space. We're talking about family offices, high net worth, uh, the more more the institutional traditional investors, and they are increasingly coming into this space. Tell us about what their needs are right now. Yeah, definitely. Um, so essentially what we're finding, particularly with COVID pandemic conditions, uncertain economic conditions, uh, you know, particularly since March, um, and there has been a real increase in interest from our um, investor and client base. So we traditionally deal with family offices, high net worths. Uh, but one of the really interesting demographics for us is the emergent wealth, which is that wealth that isn't really covered on any private bank um, client list. Um, it's the, the sort of the wealth that we would classify into the demographic of uh, sort of millennials and potentially even Gen Z. Now, it's quite young, but essentially property markets globally um, are completely out of control. Um, you're in Hong Kong. I'm in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, once considered the world's most livable city, uh, is now the world's most lockdown city. But regardless, we both live in cities that are uh, some of the highest uh, property prices in the world. So where do, you know, the emerging wealth turn to? And so digital assets, which is a, an asset for a digital age. And so that's why I guess Bitcoin being at the, you know, representing over 50% of the total crypto market share. Uh, Bitcoin has been um, one that not only the emerging wealth that aren't necessarily investing in the traditional legacy assets that their parents or Gen Z, oh sorry, Gen X or baby boomers were investing in. Um, they're going to Bitcoin, but also traditional sophisticated investors, because what we've seen is that Bitcoin has become um, a validated asset, particularly because of the institutional inflows and the institutional protections available. So, yeah, we definitely see from our investor and client base uh, a lot more curiosity because it seems to be a lot more certain, more so than it was back in 2017, uh, you know, amidst the ICO boom. So. Yeah, and and it really feels like the 
the momentum of uh, emergent class and, and just new liquidity into the space has been accelerated since COVID. A hundred percent. I mean, in March, we saw a black swan, a liquidity crunch, um, which, you know, it affected all financial markets. And so, um, you know, Bitcoin, uh, you know, retraced like 50 percent. But it's, um, you know, when we talk about Bitcoin being an inflation hedge or a safe haven asset, in a liquidity crunch, all markets and all assets will just go down because there's, um, you know, unprecedented uncertainty in the market, and particularly if uh, investors are looking to make margin calls. But what we also saw out of March was the rise of the stablecoin, um, which is, I guess, you know, that store of wealth where particularly in, um, you know, with low volatility, um, it maintains, you know, a relative, you know, one for one uh, against a U.S. dollar. Um, there are other stable coins as well, but the U.S. dollar is the strongest one out of them all. But, um, you know, particularly since March, since that event, what we noticed was a retrace. But then there was just uh, a lot more uncertainty within the existing uh, financial system within, you know, the um, government's uh, decision um, to, you know, boost quantitative easing, um, to go on you know, unprecedented uh, bonanza of money printing. You know, I think, you know, the Fed's printed, you know, three times more, uh, you know, this year than they did uh, back in the GFC in 2008. So, you know, I really think that um, this has uh, increased the curiosity for a lot of the our client base. They're asking a lot more questions. They're wanting to be educated um, and not necessarily on what is a private key, what is a public key, because a lot of those institutional custody um, protections um, and solutions are already there for them. They're just wanting to understand how does this fit into a portfolio? Um, how does this, and we only ever talk about Bitcoin as a um, as an addition uh, to a portfolio. I mean, there are some investors that like to go, you know, quite high. I've got friends that have 50% of their portfolio in Bitcoin. Now that's really quite high. But a lot of our investors tend to be attributing or allocating between one to five percent, and that's you know because it's an asymmetric risk profile. Uh, the asymmetric risk profile of it means that a very small investment can you know equate to you know minimal losses or you know extremely high returns. Particularly if you look at the track record of Bitcoin. I mean, it's still the best performing asset over the last decade, the last five years, uh, even this year. So, I think I think it's a, it's got a proven track record. Absolutely. I mean, you just take a look at uh, how equity markets have uh, been performing. And, you know, often Bitcoin, we talk about the volatility, there's no doubt there. But I think uh, in COVID world, uh, that volatility is just baked in. Um, you shared a, a recent report uh, from Zero Cap with us on Forecast News, uh, calling Bitcoin uh, as a hedge. Uh, you, you, mm. you stated that there has never been a more important time to invest in Bitcoin and Ethereum. What's your thesis here? Well, there's, I mean, now has always been the right time to invest in Bitcoin. Um, and if you ask any of the early adopters, they saw that the programmatic um, money supply schedule, um, as we go into, you know, the last Bitcoin will be mined in 2140. So it's very predictable. Um, it's borderless, it's permissionless. Um, and so it's one of those things and, you know, I think Obama called it walking around with a Swiss bank account in your pocket. It's more like a Swiss bank where you are the CEO, the teller, uh, the manager all in one. And so I think, you know, particularly with Bitcoin now, we released this report 
And we tried to do it in a way that was really digestible um, for a lot of our investors. So we try to really minimize the, the real technical aspects of Bitcoin and the Bitcoin network, which, you know, is really quite beautiful in terms of how, um, you know, it came about and how it solved the double spend problem. Um, and, but for our investors, they're not necessarily interested in how it all operates in the background. You know, what is a node? What is a miner? What do I do with the private key? What they're interested in is finding, you know, confidence. Um, and finding opportunity and trusted uh, partners to be able to work with. And so you'll notice that there's, you know, the, the re retail market will typically go to exchange. There's a over-the-counter market, which is off the market, which doesn't reflect what's happening. So the retail market only sees what's going on in exchanges. So if you look at coin market cap, you'll see Bitcoin sitting around 10.6 at the moment. But if you really look at the over-the-counter and off the market, um, uh, flows, uh, you know, it primarily represents uh, 80 to 90% of all transactions happening in Bitcoin. And so if the price was actually reflected what's happening off the market, on the market, then we'd see a very different price, you know, something more towards that, you know, six figures, um, as you mentioned at the start. And so with Bitcoin, this is the hedge, we've noticed a, you know, more curiosity, our clients are wanting to be educated, they're wanting to find confidence in what happens uh, if, I lose a ledger, but that's where the institutional custody protections come in. Fidelity, you know, trillion dollar asset manager, um, you know, entered the space. Um, you've got, um, BitGo that's, um, essentially, you know, been the, um, creme de la creme of, um, custodial solutions. But now you've got some really interesting ones coming out, particularly multi-party computational MPC technology, which to us is uh, an evolution of the custody solution because it breaks down the private key into multiple different shares. So it just makes it a lot more um, uh, distributed um, and less prone to hacking attacks. Like we you know, saw on KuCoin, uh, I think it was like 200 plus million, you know, a few weeks ago. And so, you know, some of those things that kept institutional investors, um, private clients out of the market a few years ago, um, you know, a lot of those uncertainties or um, things they're worried about have all been alleviated um, yeah. due to, you know, what's available now. So there's, I mean, the, there's, there's a technical innovation that is addressing that. And then on the regulatory front, though, in the real world, you're still in uh, what is a, a legacy monetary and capital system. And that includes tax liabilities and, and mm. paying your taxes. Uh, that for uh, preservation of wealth, um, <laughs> obviously, I, uh, you know, there is a good thing when you pay taxes, but obviously, uh, when it comes to crypto, there has just been uh, a lot of vagueness, uh, and not only in Australia, but around mm. the world, in the US, uh, in nations around the world. And so how does one address that? W that could that be a detriment to the liquidity that is looking to get into this space? Um, I think, you know, if we'd had this conversation in 2017, I'd definitely say yes, 100%. Um, you, you know, essentially saw in 2017, the retail market get access to opportunities that were typically restricted to accredited investors or what we call in Australia, sophisticated investors and institutions. So, um, you know, the regulators aren't necessarily there to regulate markets. In my opinion, they're there to regulate human behavior. So although we see in Bitcoin and the network, 
um, beautifully played out are the game theory incentives that incentivize people to participate and to act uh, in a positive and productive manner. Um, and it incentivizes good behaviors, but we don't necessarily see that in the markets. As we saw, there are multiple different scams, uh, fraudulent activity, and um, the SEC has been coming down on you know ICOs over, uh, over the last few years, even more recently. Uh, Salt Lending, I think, has um, had to pay back 47 million of you know their capital raise. And so the regulators, I think, um, I'm, I've sort of got mixed feelings on this. Like right now, I think we're at a really good point. But if we had had regulators at the very start, if Satoshi Nakamoto had actually gone to the regulators and made them a part of the conversation, we wouldn't have Bitcoin now. We wouldn't have a lot of the, um, the cryptocurrencies that we have now, the privacy coins or any of that. Um, we'd probably have something similar to what you would have, you know, call a central bank digital currency now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, fast forward to today. The, the regulators, particularly in Australia, have been really proactive, productive, working with the community. Um, there's very clear guidelines around um, the treatment of cryptos, particularly for all participants in the crypto economy, be them, you know, uh, crypto exchange providers, uh, people wanting to purchase um, crypto. The Australian Tax Office has very clear guidelines. It's considered as uh, property, so you'll pay capital gains tax on it. Um, the Austrac, which is the AML regulator here, very clear guidelines. If you are uh, an exchange provider, uh, that you need to, you know, there's your reporting obligations. Also, ASIC, which is the Australian Securities Investment Commission, um, you know, they're very clear, very similar to the SEC of what constitutes a security or not. So, any projects looking to come out, they just need to uh, abide by the the guidelines that put in place. Now, if we go overseas, you got a really interesting thing going on in the US, like Ripple, you know, recently have been talking about wanting to leave the US just because of the, the regulatory sort of um, squashing of what they would consider to be, um, you know, a free open market of, um, you know, ideas and projects coming to life. But in my opinion, I think regulators, uh, you know, globally, even though there's no real, you know, international framework that everyone abides by, I think that yeah. they're wanting to be a part of the conversation. Um, and just on, on a side note as well, originally I'm from New Zealand. Uh, New Zealand's got, I think it's one of the five countries in the world that doesn't have capital gains tax. So really attractive for um, crypto digital asset holders. But in short, I'd say that the regulators uh, in at the right time, they've learned and, um, you know, from what happened in 2017, uh, they're in to put those protections in place, which is then bringing on, um, you know, a new wave of investors like the investors that we deal with. So that, that, I mean, it's a huge question. And the other huge question that, that a lot of people are, are speculating about, including uh, our recent conversation with Tim Draper, uh, the famed Bitcoin investor early, mm. early on. Um, and, uh, when we spoke, of course, you know, I asked him about his, his claim that Bitcoin will reach six figures, that $250,000 mark by 2022 or even uh, by early 2023. Um, increasingly, <laughs> as we see the unending printing of money, uh, we know that Bitcoin has a finite, uh, it is a finite supply. And so obviously, that suggests that uh, as more people demand it and as supply goes down, it's just going to drive up the price. In your view, do you think that we will get to six figures 
sooner or later. You know, the value of Bitcoin, you know, in our mind, we don't tend to speculate too much on price because we think that the real value is in you know, hedging the tail risk, um, you know, particularly for portfolios. Um, you know, as an asset, as an investable asset, I think it's certainly, you know, proven through its track record, regardless of the short-term volatility. If you look over the long-term, there's an increasing upward trend um, that has just been going up and up. Now, if we look at, you know, the six-figured uh, Bitcoin, I think the Winklevoss twins came out and said, you know, 500,000. And that was based off of the um, comparison to gold as a market cap mm-hmm. of $9 trillion. Uh, Bitcoin's market cap's roughly 200 billion, uh, I think, or I believe. Um, and so if you, you know, 45x that or 50x that, it gets us to a price of 500,000, which would be, you know, super nice. Uh, now, if you look at, you know, this, the whole scarcity model of what Bitcoin represents, that's what, that's where it comes down to real, what is, you know, sound money? What is, you know, real value? Little story from when I was a kid, because it's one of those things that kids understand even. I'm not too sure about yourself, Angie, but I played with marbles when I was a kid. And so I ended up building a pretty substantial marble empire. And, um, (laughs) but what I did do, and at the time it was just one of those, uh, something that's sort of like inherent within the behavior of, um, you know, the circles I used to walk in as a kid was that you would always trade the, you know, the, um, ones that you had, uh, like if you had a lot of the same type of marble, you would trade it for the ones that were more rare. And so even as a child, when I look at, you know, obviously what we're doing today, I always reflect back to that time as a kid, as I built my empire was I was always trading for, you know, those ones that had, you know, they were really beautiful, that had swirls or whatever, but it was really unique. And so, um, coming back to, you know, the price of Bitcoin, what could that look like today? Bitcoin has a deflationary um, uh, property built into it already. So even though we know that it's going to, you know, the last Bitcoin is going to be mined in 2140, there's 18.5 million Bitcoin in existence at the moment. What we haven't factored into account um, necessarily is how many Bitcoin have actually been lost over the years. Mm. Now, if you put a rough estimate, you say two to three million. So if that is the case, then we're roughly sitting at 15 million Bitcoin. Now, does that then, you know, um, it obviously makes it more scarce. Does that also then increase the value of it? Well, value is always dependent on what the market's willing to pay for it. And that's where I think, you know, if you look at the Austrian School of Economics, they look at, you know, what is sound money, sound money, or what is good money? It is what the free market decides money is. What we have in today's environment is obviously the case of fiat where governments not only decide, but, you know, through taxation and through the um, services and goods or goods and services that the yeah. prices are always, you know, valued in it. So it's um, the market is basically saying that Bitcoin is money. Um, it's a store of value, just like gold is money. It's a store of value, just like, you know, other asset yeah. classes that they're getting into. So uh, if you had asked me what I think, you know, Bitcoin is mm. going to be at by the end of the year, it's not something we tend to speculate on because we think, you know, the value in it's not necessarily in the price because we've got mm. a track record of the prices. We know that it's going to, you know, go up as long as the market and the participants in that market continue to value it as so. And we've got that validation, not just from retail, but also from, you know, the institutional investors. 
and just conscious I've been talking a little bit yeah. and um, I get quite, you know, excited on uh, or quite enthusiastic or quite energized, you know, when talking about these things. But if you, even if you look at the institutional investors, you know, recently this year since, you know, March, uh, Paul Tudor Jones came out, said that, you know, it's the best inflation against, you know, um, uh, exuberant cash printing. Yeah. You've got, you know, multiple different uh, companies um, uh, moving their cash reserves or the cash balance into Bitcoin because they yeah. think it's a much more safer hedge. No, I totally want to pick up on that point because yeah. it, it is more of these traditional trusted voices getting into the space. I think price is an interesting uh, marker for people who are on the periphery and then wonder about why more and more people are pricing one Bitcoin or one asset at such high levels. And that's actually, both of those things is actually what draws the kind of money that we haven't seen come into the market, into crypto, into this industry until really increasingly this year. Uh, as that inflationary hedge, as that hedge play, as that digital gold play. Um, so that's what's really interesting because you actually are uh, asked to be stewards of a lot of this type of new money uh, that is getting into the space, which is really important, as you know, because at the end of the day, it's what somebody is willing to pay for what you are willing to mm. sell. So if there's more money in the market, if there's more demand, obviously what you have is, you know, increasing in value. And mm. so in your view, when you are dealing with your family offices and even all the way down to emerging wealth, you know, this kind of language in the per that, that attracts this money in the periphery is intensifying, it feels like. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. And so um, one of the big things you know, for us is that a lot of our investors um, or traditional investors that have moved into the digital asset crypto space, they're looking for yield. And so that's one of the, um, you know, the big plays that we see, you know, through to towards the end of this year and um, through next year. I mean, in terms of what's been going on in the crypto market with the futures with some of the, you know, the recent um, news that has come out, um, we thought that was going to, uh, like the BitMEX um, news or the BitMEX event, we thought that was going to have some, you know, uh, a major effect on Bitcoin, but it didn't really seem to move much. It didn't really, um, it didn't really move much, except out of BitMEX is what we actually oh, yeah. saw. Yeah. The a, market a lot of money itself. Moved, it moved out right. of BitMEX, yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, you, you talk about yield. What about DeFi? Is, is that changing the game? Yeah, DeFi is something that we have looked at. Um, it's not exactly ripe for our investor, our, our client base, um, purely because of the, it feels like it's another bubble forming. It feels like 2017 all over again. Um, what we're noticing is that there, um, it's almost like in that bubble graph, you know, the exuberant stage. They're, the yield farming um, craze that happened, the amount of time and energy, um, you know, that was uh, that you need to invest in it. So for us, that's why we have uh, Ethereum as, you know, one of, particularly one of our assets that um, that we speak about, that we educate on, purely because you can have all these different DeFi plays, um, and. But if you really look at it, what are they built on? You know, Ethereum is mm -hmm. the protocol that nine out of 10, 10 out of 10 are actually built on. Mm -hmm. And so if you want exposure to that DeFi market, then Ethereum is a, is an amazing investment for that. Um, if you actually do want to invest the time and 
learn yield farming, then I almost feel like that has we're, we're sort of on the way down. If you look at the DeFi market and how far or how far it's retraced back, um, you know the it was like a golden period between like April to like July or August where you saw like yearn or why earn, you know, go yeah. from like 1,000 up to 40,000 and then back down to like 18,000 or so. Well, it's equivalent of- to, yeah, it's equivalent to almost a commodity play. I mean, that's essentially, you know, Ethereum being the fuel for what we're seeing in DeFi. 100%. And, you know, just adding on to that, like the Ethereum investment case, particularly with what's coming with, um, you know, Ethereum 2.0, um, the staking model as well. But, you know, the ETH that are, that's getting locked up in the DeFi space, it's almost starting to be considered as a, a store of value, not necessarily in line with, you know, Bitcoin store of value proposition, but still, you know, there's a, a lot of conversations are happening around that, that um, we're, we're getting asked a lot of questions, you know, what is Ethereum? How do we invest in it? Why is this going to be a good investment for us? Well, one final question before I let you go, and and I'm sure it's it's on the minds of of a lot of people uh, in the market right now. Will more of this institutional, traditional, family office money be coming into the market? In your view, one hundred percent. In my mind, <laughs> um, you know, if we look at the market, the amount of conversations that we're having with family offices that are wanting to diversify their portfolio to hedge out, you know, the inflation risk. And we haven't necessarily seen the full impact of, you know, what inflation is going to look like. Um, but our clients are, you know, particularly the ones that are forward thinking, you know, a lot of our clients have, through our conversations, have been talking about, we've been on the sidelines, we've been watching, we've been waiting for the right time to enter. And like, as you would know, if you're sitting on the sidelines waiting for the right time to enter with Bitcoin, when it goes up, you're just waiting for it to come back down. When it goes down, you lose confidence and you're uncertain. And so I think, you know, particularly now because of what's happening in the macro conditions that we're starting to see, um, you know, even publicly traded companies like MicroStrategy, you know, that would have taken six to 12 months for them to have passed that through. Um, so I think we aren't yet, we're, we're not yet seeing, you know, really what's going to be happening um, in 2021 because a lot of those things are in play at the moment. But yes, 100%, I do believe that based on the conversations we're having with our client base and based on partners within the space as well and the conversations they're having with their um, high net worth clients as well. So, Well, thank you for this conversation and sharing all of these observations in this space. Uh, there's no doubt that that there is more liquidity coming to the market. Uh, as the, the general, more traditional markets, the monetary system, uh, creates the roller coaster effect. You know, we're all holding on really tight, but it's interesting to see that more and more interest is getting into the crypto space. Trent Barnes, mm. thank you so much for your insights. Thank you, Angela. Appreciate you coming on the show. And thank you, Appreciate everyone, it. for joining us on this latest episode of Word on the Block. I'm Angie Lau, editor in chief. Until the next time. 